We've been fighting a long time, and we've all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. All right. Welcome to our uh, Zoom presentations for Wednesday evenings, Wednesday night at the parish. We have these Zoom presentations, both giving meditations as well as sometimes updates on uh, the most recent developments regarding the protocols of our good bishop. Um, but yes, last week we decided to discuss a very timely topic, namely the notion of vaccines because of the COVID-19 situation and the fact that having read some of those headlines from the last week, that we have um, you know, 300 million potential vaccination shots being developed, uh, hopefully available, they're saying by January, 2021. And so vaccines become sort of a topic that I think a lot of people want to discuss, or at least be, uh, uh, to have more explanations given to them regarding this topic. Uh, and so, again, we have Pam Acker with us um, uh, from last week. This is sort of part two. Um, and uh, I do want to do a, a couple of things. First of all, again, remember COVID-19 from last week. I read some headlines from the newspapers. Uh, the notion that uh, the president has uh, had an Operation Warp Speed, sort of a, the military's involved to try to deliver this vaccine as quickly as possible. And as I stated, uh, 300 million vaccines supposedly by January of 2021. There's supposedly been uh, developments uh, in certain pharmaceutical companies, uh, in particular Moderna, uh, which suggests that there's been successful initial testing so far. Um, and so a lot of people are really pushing for the vaccines to be the answer to the COVID-19 issue. Uh, and that's sort of how we live in many ways. We can't fully open up until we have the vaccine. That's how many people are thinking. But I, I do want to just go back to last week. Uh, and Pam will also just, will both provide some clarifications. Um, last week, we mentioned the notion of unethical uh, versions of vaccines that are derived in some way by the cells of um, aborted uh, fetuses, uh, the fetal tissues. Um, uh, and so we obviously uh, uh, read the Pontifical Academy of Life document, uh, and this obviously condemns that entire notion of deriving these vaccines from unethical uh, aborted fetuses. And but I think sometimes when people read the headlines a few years ago when that document came out, the headline ended up being, even the Catholic press, the Catholic Church accepts the use of vaccines, even if they come from uh, these illicit, unethical sources. And that is not what the Pontifical Academy for Life states. It's an extremely, completely negative evaluation of the entire process. Uh, and so it's saying obviously those who were part of developing the vaccine using fetal tissue from aborted fetuses, for those who are marketing, for those who develop 
pharmaceutical companies, for the marketing, marketing branch of uh, pharmaceutical companies, for those who are actively involved in a very formal way in promoting this vac vaccine, these vaccinations. Um, but even for those who are the parents who are sort of sort of stuck in many ways with, let's say, only unethical versions of vaccines being available, uh, we find that um, um, the Vatican was very, 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 very uh, uh, nuanced in this area. It basically said this, you never want to fully agree to this as being something good that you need for yourself, for your dependents, but it, your will is never fully agreeing to this as something that is a good, that you're under a certain coercion. There's no other vaccine, vaccines that are ethical available. And so your will is, it has a certain violence being done to it. And so th that is what's happening. We're not agreeing to this in a full, pure will sort of way. There's a violence being done to uh, the, the individual who has to, as a last resort, use this particular vaccine. Uh, and so that the church says, temporary. This is a temporary sort of situation that the parent is required, duty-bound, to object, uh, that we are all required to object to seek proper, licit versions of vaccines. But then Pam said last week, as you know, it's sort of, a perpetuation of this situation that the pharmaceutical companies don't seem particularly pressured to provide ethical versions of vaccines. And so I think we do need to um, properly object and even not vaccine in some cases uh, as, uh, as an objection, knowing also that um, uh, we are called to witness to life in the fullest sense, uh, especially when COVID-19, according to Pam, she said last week, at least seven or eight, it seems, of the various versions of the COVID-19, you know, SARS-CoV-2 uh, vaccines probably come from aborted fetal tissue lines. So, Pam, I wanted to add that, but let's get back to you. Do you want to bring about bring up any clarifications from last week, uh, particularly maybe how vaccines also work and uh, to get our terms right. Sure. Um, I, had a, I had a couple questions, I guess, in the interim, Father, um, about the rabies vaccine in particular. And um, because I had mentioned that it can be used after exposure to rabies is, is um, thought to have happened or, or verified to have happened. And um, you, you certainly can't use most vaccines in this way. And this, is, this would be a, a therapeutic use of the vaccine. And so, for example, if you have pertussis, the last thing you would want to do is go into the doctor's office and get a pertussis vaccine. That would actually make your situation worse. Um, and that's the case for most vaccines. You don't want to take them when you're sick. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that at the end. Let me talk about um, the, the ways to... to you know, hopefully minimize or, or at least reduce um, possible damage um, from vaccines if, you're, if you have to be vaccinated. Um, but uh, before I go into all of that, I think it would be helpful to talk about how vaccines actually work in the body because 
um, I think there's just a little bit of, of misunderstanding about that. So just very, very, very basic overview. When you are vaccinated, um, there, there, there's a small amount of weakened disease material and this might be um, actually still alive. In this case, it would be something called attenuated. So it's, it's been mutated or um, weakened in some way so that it doesn't cause a normal standard infection. Um, and then you also have killed vaccines or, or inactivated vaccines. These are, these are the actual disease material, but they've been um, inactivated in some way, often with chemicals, uh, sometimes things like formaldehyde and uh, you also have subunit vaccines. And these are vaccines where you take, as I was um, explained to you the other day, Father, you take just a piece of the, the pathogen and um, inject that into the body. And these things are all injected intramuscularly. And um, so it's, it's that weakened disease material or, or part, of the, part of the disease that's, that's injected into your muscles. And it's important to note, this is not a normal mode of exposure. The normal mode of exposure for most diseases is usually through um, respiratory or oral roots. And so it, taking something and injecting it into your muscles is, is abnormal. And um, we'll talk a little bit about that again, also later in the talk, a little bit more about that. So kind of make a note, a mental note of that. And then um, the, the subunit vaccines, the ones that just take a piece of the disease material, are supposed to be safer than the, the live vaccines because you can actually contract the disease from somebody who has been vaccinated with a live vaccine. And um, the live vaccines are uh, the measles, mumps, and rubella, uh, rotavirus, chicken pox, um, and uh, the oral polio and the nasal influenza vaccines. Um, those are the ones that you would see commonly in the U.S. at this point. The oral polio not that has been uh, suspended in the U.S., but it's it's still um, in use around the world and other places. So um, you can actually contract the disease from vaccinated individuals who are who become carriers of it, and the vaccinated individuals themselves can contract it. Um, so subunit vaccines are were thought to be safer, but um, this is not necessarily the case because they have something added to them called an adjuvant. And this is, a, I think, the Latin word for helper. And these are things that um, cause your body to have a greater immune response because the, they found that since the vaccine wasn't live, it wasn't producing the same amount of antibody response. And so that leads me to the other important part about understanding the way vaccines work. And that's that um, the measurement of a vaccine's efficacy is the antibody response. And this is supposed to somehow equal immunity. And um, this kind of leads to, to a little bit of confusion of terms we talked about. Uh, you know, vaccination is not the same thing as immunization. So when I'm taking this disease material and I'm injecting it intramuscularly, it's not the same thing as being exposed and fighting the disease normally. And partly because of the route of exposure, but partly because the, the vaccine seems to bypass the innate immune response. And this is the, the reaction that you have um, to a disease that actually is what makes you feel sick. It's not the disease itself or the pathogen itself. It's, um, it's usually your immune response that, that causes you know, the fever and the um, kind of nausea or tiredness or things like that that are normally associated with being sick. And um, the vaccine also primes the body in favor of a B cell response instead of a T cell response. And um, 
we can maybe put a bookmark here as well, because this is uh, very important in the mediation of autoimmune pathology, which we're going to talk about later. So um, B cells produce a lot of antibodies, and um, that, that can be really important in the development of autoimmune disease. And so all of this can kind of dramatically affect how the body responds to future pathogens. So if I'm, if I'm taking this uh, sort of uh, abnormal route of exposure, I can, I can change the way that the body responds to disease. And that's something that, that isn't um, talked about as much as just the, the protective effect of, of trying to sort of train the body to recognize a particular disease. And uh, so that's just a little bit about how vaccines work and hopefully that was reasonably understandable. Um, but that brings me to the rabies vaccine, which, which is actually a vaccine. It is that disease material. It's, it's one of the inactivated vaccines um, that's then injected into the body. And um, if you are, are exposed to rabies, and you know, I looked up um, the number of deaths from rabies per year in the U.S. is it's about one to three deaths per year at this point. Um, but about 30 to 60,000 people are treated for possible exposure to rabies every year. So our, our method of treatment is actually quite good. <laughs> um, even if you assume only about 1% of those possible exposures are actual exposures, um, our treatment rates are still extremely excellent if, if only one to three deaths are actually occurring per year. So the rabies vaccine is actually part of the treatment for rabies. And it's... Um, it's going to induce the body to mount an immune response to the rabies virus by, by um, exposing the body to that inactivated um, rabies virus that's in the vaccine. And the reason that this works is because rabies is, is different than a lot of the other infectious diseases that we would vaccinate for. And um, it has an incubation period between uh, several weeks to several months depending on, on where the rabies exposure happens. If you're bitten um, in an extremity, uh, it's, it's, you're, it takes longer for it to develop than if you're bitten in your core. So um, the, this, is a, this is an example of uh, you know, a reasonable use of a vaccine. It's, it's, it's a therapeutic use instead of a prophylactic use. And so that's where I think the, the um, part of the confusion is happening too, because most vaccines are prophylactic, which is basically a, techie science word for saying that they're um, things that you would do in advance of a possible exposure. So this is not a treatment for a disease, but it's a, it's a method of preventing the disease. So um, vaccines are, are, are not all prophylactic, as we just saw, and all prophylaxis is not vaccines. So we don't want to confuse those two terms, kind of like we don't want to confuse vaccination and, and immunization. They're two, two separate things. Um, but it would be reasonable to use um, the rabies vaccine prophylactically if you're in a situation where you might be exposed to rabies quite a bit. Say if you work in wildlife removal and um, you are in danger on a relatively frequent basis of possibly getting bit by a raccoon who, you know, would possibly carry rabies. I mean, the, the, there, there are times when it is reasonable to um, try to prevent the possible onset of a disease. But um, I know some folks were, were a little bit worried. Nobody in the parish probably needs to rush out and get a rabies vaccine. I, I think <laughs> it's fairly safe to say um, the likelihood of you contracting rabies or, or dying of it if you did contract it is extremely, extremely low. Um, 
so that okay. that was the clarification I wanted to make sure I okay. issued there. Thank you, Pam. So just to sort of look at that just a little bit. So the rabies vaccine, there are ethical versions of that vaccine, right? That's right. That's right. I, I forgot to mention that. I'm sorry, Father. And I, I, I was even sort of frantically pulling up the document as you were doing your introduction because I remembered I forgot it at that point. But um, the rabies vaccine came up last week uh, because it is um, one of the vaccines that, that is made using aborted fetal cells. But it's a specific brand of the rabies vaccine that's made that way. Um, and that, that uh, the trade name is Imovax, and that's by Sanofi Pasteur. And it's made using the MRC5 uh, aborted fetal cell line. But there is an ethical alternative, and that alternative is called Rabavert. And that's uh, made by GlaxoSmithKline, and that's made in egg cells. And so all of that information is available on um, the Children of God for Life website. If you go to their website, they have a, a vaccines tab. And under that tab, they have a vaccine chart, and that gives you just a, a simple one-page PDF format of all of the vaccines that are made in aborted fetal cells, as well as any ethical alternatives that are available in the U.S. or internationally. And I guess I would also add uh, that you had told me that you know, ra rabies is, 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 can be deadly. I mean, it, I mean it's, it's 100% if, you, if it's not treated, basically. Well, it's, it's, it's pretty close to 100%. There, there have been documented cases of, of uh, once you develop symptoms of rabies, there are about 20 cases once you develop symptoms, symptoms of rabies, you don't die. Um, mm -hmm. And that was something I didn't know. I, I learned that when I was um, looking up more about the rabies vaccine and, and rabies in general this week. So it's possible that you wouldn't die, but it's highly unlikely um, once you so, develop symptoms. So you can see the need for an intervention in a therapeutic way of this vaccine. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Chickenpox is generally not <laughs> obviously a deadly thing. So to right. compare the two vaccines, uh, it, it, it doesn't seem appropriate. That vaccines are all good, be, including the chickenpox, and because uh, it, right. it can save lives. Right. Yeah. We don't. We don't want to necessarily use the rabies vaccine example to justify all vaccines or or the phenomenon of, of prophylactic vaccination in general, um, simply because it, it is an exceptional case. It's not the norm that we would see with the diseases that we're trying to prevent using vaccines. Good. So now that we have sort of looked at that as sort of a clarification from last week, uh, I think we want to go into a little bit of the ideology behind the notion of vaccinations, uh, especially the ideology that would drive us to think that we truly cannot get back to normal life in our country and in the world until a vaccine is developed and distributed. So obviously some major ideology is driving that mindset. So in looking at these things, I sort of felt that maybe some of the principles of the Enlightenment could have contributed to this mindset regarding the ideology of vaccinating. Um, so I'm just going to go through that just a, just a quick, uh, quick bit here. Um, again, an ideology is almost like a, it's a, it's a set of ideas. And so it's almost like doctrinaire. It's like a religion uh, being applied to even and the notion of something secular. Um, ideologues oftentimes are unbending individuals. Um, they, they don't compromise regarding many things. 
Um, they can be moralizers. They are doing good for humanity, good for you, good for your family, good for all of humanity. Uh, listen to us because we're more enlightened than you are. And resistance is futile. And, and put, a, put a flag next to that because we'll, we'll get to that. <clears throat> the desire, and this is part of the enlightenment. We're talking about, you know, the 17th century, 18th century, 19th century uh, sort of series of philosophies in connection with the Enlightenment, uh, the notion that somehow part of the Enlightenment was the desire to transform nature, uh, to make it better, somehow improve humanity by applying human reason alone. Uh, and part of that is that we would be ultimately become masters of nature, so that we could sort of manipulate the nature of things to suit our ambitions. Uh, the age of the enlightenment, also known as the age of reason. It was an intellectual and philosophical movement that dominated the world for those three or four centuries. But the ideas are still there. The enlightenment included a range of ideas centered on the sovereignty of reason and the evidence of the senses as the primary sources of knowledge and advance the ideas of liberty and progress and toleration and brotherhood amongst men, constitutional government, etc., etc. As for the Enlightenment conception of the universe and of nature, it was purely seen as rationally ordered, as if nature and the universe were like a machine. And if it were like a machine, it can be altered can be sort of played with just a bit. Again, for the Enlightenment thinker, reason is always the only source of authority. We can remake the world, we can remake nature, we can recreate humanity. That's the mindset. Because of the influence of the Enlightenment, man saw himself largely as separated, separated from his earthly created environment, as if he were somehow outside of nature. The empire of reason brought about this enlightenment in regards to dealing with nature, to manipulate nature, alter it, even abuse nature according to the mind of man. And if mankind was separated from the natural world, which enlightenment thinkers thought, then we could in fact mistreat, torture it, nature, and radically change it according to human whims. The famous Enlightenment thinker, one of the most famous, a guy named Francis Bacon, thought that, quote, the scientist must steal, steal, mind you, the secrets of nature in Promethean fashion, as Prometheus stole fire from the gods. You have to sort of torture nature to get its secrets, interrogate it and torture it. Furthermore, Bacon felt that the torture of nature had to be employed as one would compel an unwilling witness to reveal what he had been concealing. Bleach that white flour. Refine that sugar. Genetically modify that organism by fooling around with the DNA. Make a girl into a boy. Destroy the marital act through contraception. Sterilize healthy, productive, reproductive organs. Replace the natural with the artificial. Replace the organic with the processed. Don't just be a good steward over nature. 
but rather be a mad scientist who can denature something and then form a new nature. Make a designer baby with pre-selected genes and have the body beautiful. Form your own Frankenstein monster. Or perhaps capture the secrets of the atom and make weapons of mass destruction to use against civilian populations. The primitive savage, the uneducated people, the unenlightened, simply accepts their natural environment as something given to them. But the enlightened man transforms the environment according to his mind. The famous mathematicians, physicist and astronomer, famous man Isaac Newton, viewed the universe and nature again as if they were like machines that can be studied, fooled with, and even altered. And if this is true, why not fool with and even alter the created human nature that the good Lord gave us? Why not accelerate evolution just a bit? The enlightened person would say, maybe eliminated the tainted gene pool from the population with a little bit of eugenics until we can form that perfect man, that Aryan race, that transhuman who is on the road to post-human existence. So that was my long-winded sort of statement against the Enlightenment. Not so enlightened, really. But Pam, having introduced that, you're really very, very well-read and a thinker regarding the error of evolution. But maybe you could take the era of evolution and sort of bring it into the notion of vaccines. Sure, Father. Um, and I appreciate your shout out to Star Trek there, by the way, with the, the resistance is futile. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I, I really do think that, that one very integral and, and, of course, I think probably often overlooked um, key to, to why the, the vaccination continues to be employed despite failing on the promises that we were talking about last week. It, it fails to fully protect the individuals for, for long term. It, it fails to, certainly fails to protect the society with problems like strain replacement, which are, are potentially just as problematic as antibiotic resistance, just they're not paid as much attention to. And, um, and then of course, all of the risks that we're going to look at, you know, a little bit later in this talk. Um, one of the reasons that we, we keep uh, using it is, is it's very rooted in this modern evolutionary understanding of medicine. And so there's two basic worldviews that one can subscribe to. And, and the first is, um, you know, often uh, when I work with uh, um, the Colby Center, it's uh, described as the creation providence framework. Um, basically, we can believe that man's body as made by God truly has a marvelous design and all of the parts of it are ordered to the whole. And so this is really the framework that inspired some of the best minds in natural science. Um, and uh, William Harvey in particular, who discovered the circulation of the blood, um, discovered it because he was looking for purposiveness in the systems that he was studying. Um, Michael Faraday hypothesized about the unity of electromagnetic forces because of, um, actually because of his understanding of the Trinity and the, the unity um, within the three persons in God. And, you know, of course, there are other um, scientists like Blessed Nicholas Steno, who um, really developed geography, and um, Carl Linnaeus, who developed a, a, just the, the taxonomic classification system that we use now. These men were all working under this framework that, that 
one of the key features of it is this idea of a, um, an Aristotelian idea of the final cause. Um, this idea that, that things are ordered towards an end and there is purposiveness in nature. And evolution really had to throw that out because evolution, um, if you subscribe to the evolutionary framework, um, you believe that man's body is, is made by natural selection and it's a random amalgamation of factors and that individual parts of it can be manipulated in, in some, somewhat without reference to the whole um, because they kind of are there by chance and they may even be leftovers um, of, of evolutionary ancestors that we don't really need or use anymore. And so evolution is really rooted in naturalism, which is, um, you know, can be defined as a philosophical belief that, that everything is going to arise from natural properties and causes. And it immediately excludes, or, or by, by definition, excludes supernatural or spiritual explanations for anything. And then na this naturalism logically is going to lead to reductionism, which is basically um, the idea that you can take a complex phenomenon and explain it in terms of a very much simpler phenomenon. And this, um, it ignores the idea of emergent properties, which is that idea that the part, the, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. And we know that in a living thing, the whole is more than the sum of its parts, because if I put all of the parts of a bacteria together in a test tube, it will not spontaneously self-assemble into a bacteria or bacterium, to use the proper singular. Um, it, it just doesn't work that way. There, there are emergent properties of life. And so reductionism kind of ignores those. And this worldview has very practical consequences, like the myopic focus that we have in drug development now, um, looking for sometimes for single target molecules in the human body that, that we're, we think is going to treat a disease symptom. And when I teach uh, AP Biology Father, I always like to put up a, a big uh, picture of um, signaling networks within cells and, and show them how one, one molecule is connected to so many other molecules in the body. And if you're not looking at the whole of that and you're just looking at that one molecule and saying, okay, I know that this is somehow involved in the disease that I'm working on. So I wanna stop or start the functioning of this particular molecule. Well, if I change that one thing in the middle of this giant network, I'm gonna change the whole network. And we talked a little bit about that with um, the idea of ecosystem biology last week. We talked about strain replacement. Um, you, can't, you can't just sort of pick one part out of the body or one part out of, out of nature and say, if I, I can manipulate this part as much as I want and, and nothing really is gonna happen to the rest of it. It's just, it's unreasonable. Um, so really from the beginning, the, the pioneers of vaccination were focused on developing vaccines to combat or, or prevent specific diseases and rather than striving to understand the way that the body's immune system worked and work within that framework. So the focus was on the, the, the germ and not the body. And there's, there's reductionism in that, but there's also reductionism in this idea that um, antibodies are considered the equivalent to immunity. I mean, most people don't realize how complex the immune system is and how many different cells and how many different processes are involved in it. And to think that we could just take this single marker and say, okay, if I have this, therefore I'm immune. And there's so many studies that have come out in the recent past showing that, that we have no real idea how the immune system works, or at least haven't had a real idea for a long time, because things that we thought were, were just involved in kind of the first line of non-specific defense are actually involved in immunological memory, and, and it, there's all this cross-connectivity, and, and you really just can't take out one piece of that and say, okay, this is equal to immunity. Um, 
And then of course we have this idea that, that without vaccination, our, our body's going to be unable to face the regular onslaught of pathogens because of course it's all this, you know, naturally selected um, leftover junk from chimpanzees. So, you know, it may or may not work the way that we would like it to. So it, really evolutionary theory influences vaccination quite a bit. And vaccination isn't the first time that modern medicine has attempted to improve on God's design. And, you know, I can refer uh, our listeners to, to Hugh Owen's work, um, The Negative Impact of the Evolutionary Hypothesis on Scientific Research, which is available on um, the Colby Center's website, and that's, that's colbaycenter.org. Um, and he talks about uh, a number of different ways that, that evolution has negatively impacted scientific research. So I'm just going to mention two of them because they're relevant to immunology and I think they're relevant to the discussion about vaccination. And um, it's the tonsils and the appendix. And so both of these organs were initially um, thought by evolutionists to be vestigial. And so that, that means that they're, they're kind of leftover evolutionarily. They don't have a function in our body currently, but they had a function in the past and we just somehow haven't eliminated them by natural selection yet. And uh, the tonsils are now known to have significant immune function. And so a lot of tonsillectomies were performed in the, in the past the, um, because the organs were thought to be useless. And really what this ended up doing was actually stripping patients of their God-given first line of defense of their immune system. Because as I said before, most infections are going to come through through the respiratory or through the oral route, and most of that's going to go straight down your throat. So right at the base of your throat are your tonsils. That's that's your front guard, if you will, for your immune system. And this, you know, had a pretty big impact in that you know people with their tonsils removed, they were more likely to have uh, more serious cases of polio um, during the polio. Uh, uh, I don't, don't want to call it an epidemic because there were a lot of other factors that were non-virus oriented, but, it, but when there was a problem with paralytic polio in the U.S., um, that if you had had your tonsils removed, you were more likely to have a serious case of it. And uh, just generally, people who keep their tonsils are, are generally healthier than those who don't. And, the, and this has been observed over long-term studies up to 30 years. So <clears throat> the, the focus of of tonsils as being vestigial, as being a, a sort of these evolutionary leftovers, uh, led to another huge problem, which is the shifting of attention away from the physiological and environmental factors that are responsible for the swelling of the tonsils, which is usually why they got removed. Um, and it's pinning the blame for that condition on, on the nature of the tonsil itself. And that that idea that, you know, that I have to correct what's in the body because what's in the body isn't good enough or doesn't work right is something we, we see still in vaccination. Um, and of course, appendix was also similar, was regarded as a vestigial organ and that that idea that it was vestigial basically retarded scientific research on the appendix for about a century. And we now know that it's part of the gut associated lymphoid tissue. And of course you can survive without it, but I can also survive without my right arm, Father, but I'd really like to keep it. <laughs> it's kind of important. <laughs> um, so, so maybe you could, um, I mean, I also mentioned the notion of genetics, which is tied to evolution, of course. Right. Somehow there are desirable sort of traits that you want to bring about in a species, uh, the, human, the human race, and probably eliminate those things which aren't undesirable, according to at least a rational sort look at things according to them right um, so again how would that not just tie to evolution but maybe tied to vaccines as well 
Sure. Um, so the, the evolutionary worldview uh, is considered by many to have led to the idea of, of eugenics and led to the eugenics movement that began in the, eight, the, the late 1800s in England. Um, and, and natural scientists were basically working, like you said, to, to improve the, the genetics of lots of things, of, of crop plants, of, of animals. Uh, dogs were a particularly interesting subject. They, they really, a lot of the dog breeds um, have their roots in the, in the, um, this idea of eugenics from the late 1800s. And even humans um, were thought to be modifiable using rigorous programs of selective breeding. So what, what the eugenicists ended up doing is, is pushing organisms to the limits of their genetic variability. And you see this particularly with, uh, with dog breeds. Um, if you look at a, a purebred dog, um, certain kinds of dogs that they have trouble breathing, other kinds of dogs have uh, congenital hip problems or um, congenital uh, problems with hormones or, or mutations that cause certain diseases and things like that. Um, when you try with our, our limited human intellect to, to improve something, what we end up doing, because again, we're taking things out of the context of the whole, um, we, we end up introducing unexpected side effects, if you will. So as you're, you're pushing an organism towards what you're desiring, you're also uh, carrying along other, other um, baggage with that, if you will. And this kind of research, this eugenic research is still being done with um, genetically modified organisms. And um, one of the ones that was uh, very popular when I got interested in, in science about 20 years ago was golden rice, which is uh, rice that's been modified to express beta carotene, which is a precursor to vitamin A. And it was supposed to uh, remedy nutrient deficiencies in countries where rice was a primary part of their diet. But um, it turns out that in a lot of these places, they had other ways of remedying vitamin A deficiency and other things they normally ate. So it, it was a little bit of a, a disappointment. But um, vaccines are... Um, they can be used as part of this eugenic movement, this idea that we can modify um, modify organisms. And, and the, the primary way that I'm aware of is the, the birth control vaccine that the World Health Organization has been trying to develop for a number of years. And uh, they've discovered that, that using um, HCG in conjunction with tetanus toxoid can have a sterilizing effect. And this vaccine was deployed in Kenya um, just recently, uh, in, in I think the past five years, uh, and targeted to, to women of childbearing age. And uh, similar vaccine campaigns have also been conducted in the Philippines and a couple of other world, third world countries. And um, there's also uh, the use of the oral polio vaccine in third world countries. I mean, we know that the oral polio vaccine causes polio. There's more cases of polio-derived vaccine in the world right now than there is um, wild polio. And yet we're still willing to give it to people that are, you know, considered by most of the enlightenment elite to be lower class because they're, you know, not as important. And there are a number of vaccine trials that have actually gotten moved into third world countries and had um, spectacularly bad effects. Uh, Gardasil um, in particular comes to mind. The, the phase three trials of Gardasil were being conducted in India and there were a um, number of young women who are now permanently damaged. Um, from that. And, and so, you know, I, I think, uh, and I, I try not to talk about Bill Gates too much, Father, because I don't like to 
get too political. My area of expertise is science and not, not politics or, or uh, corruption or any of those things. But um, he did say that with, with, uh, with better vaccines, we can reduce the overall world population. So that, that does have a, a rather eugenic ring to it. It, do, it does. And it, it, as if somehow the ability to bring forth children, give birth is somehow a sickness that has to be vaccinated. Right. It's a strange thing. Um, I think this would lead into something you know and have done a lot of research about. Because you have ideologues who think that we can improve upon what the good Lord has given to us in terms of human nature, because it's all, you know, sort of a random chance sort of, uh, sort of way that we came about anyway, so that we can manipulate. Um, and you have these ideologues uh, who are, let's say, pushing the notion of vaccinations as the only way that we can truly be safe. Um, the state sometimes becomes involved and you have potentially ideologues becoming tyrants who are going to either force vaccinations, which has happened in the past, and you'll go through this, I hope, right. or what might happen in maybe a more uh, sort of a liberal environment is that, oh, we won't force you, but we'll make you filled with shame because you have decided to have blood in your hands, uh, you know, endangering your children, endangering the entire race of humanity. Um, and so uh, I think that's important to kind of maybe go through a little bit of that, how ideologues have become tyrants and the ideology of vaccinating becomes forced. Right. Sure. So um, I, I kind of put together a little bit of a timeline uh, regarding mandatory vaccinations, because I think most people are unaware that um, the vaccines have actually been protested from the very beginning, Father. It's, uh, it's really quite an interesting history. So it starts out in 1798 um, or thereabouts, which is when Jenner published his paper that claimed that, that uh, he could generate lifelong immunity with, from smallpox using his, his vaccination, which as we know was cowpox and, and um, the word vaccination itself comes from the Latin word for cow. So by um, 1817, which is not quite 20 years later, um, the London Medical Repository Monthly Journal and Review reported that the rate of smallpox among that the vaccinated is alarmingly great. So um, already they were noticing that, hey, actually we're, we're seeing a lot more disease among people that are vaccinated than we should. And two years later, the Edinburgh, Edinburgh Medical and Surgical Journal reported that wherever vaccination has been introduced, the cases of failures are now increased to an alarming proportion. And um, by, by the early 1900s, if not earlier, it was already recommended to vaccinate for smallpox up to once a year because the, the lifelong immunity was not, um, not uh, working out for them. So in the meantime, um, in 1853, vaccination of infants for smallpox became mandatory in England. And the consequences for not vaccinating your child um, were sometimes fines, but all the way up to incarceration. So they would, they would arrest you if you didn't vaccinate your child. And then in 1866, um, the first anti-compulsory vaccination league was founded by Richard Gibbs in England. And this was kind of in anticipation of a, a law that was then passed the next year in 1867, which extended mandatory vaccination to 14-year-olds. And so we're still, we're still in England. We're basically in England until I, I switch over to America, says the next several points. But in um, 1871, 1872, there was particularly bad outbreaks of, of smallpox in um, a city uh, called Leicester in England 
saw what they described as fearful mortality from smallpox. And this was despite the fact that almost everybody in Leicester was vaccinated and supposedly protected from the disease. So about 10 years later, um, uh, so public opposition to vaccination had been growing in the meantime because of this particular outbreak. Um, arrests in Leicester for defying the Vaccination Act were up to um, 1,100 individuals a year. So that was, that was quite a bit. Um, and as I said before, fines were also implemented. And um, according to uh, Dr. Suzanne Humphreys, who writes about all of this in her book, um, Dissolving Illusions, uh, she says that the penalties fell disproportionately on the poor, who, if they could not afford to pay the fine for noncompliance with the vaccination law, would have the settlement forcibly offset by seizure and sale of their furniture. So, um, you know, it's it's uh, kind of ironic that this idea of mandatory vaccination is also, um, you know, it, it hits against one of the, the main... Um, themes of the, the people who are supporting the mandatory vaccination are also often supporting um, not <laughs> disproportionately disadvantaging the poor. So it's a little bit uh, contradictory there. Uh, but then in 1883, a couple years later, um, uh, and this is uh, just a, one specific example, I'm sure there were many, but a man by the name of Arthur Ward already had two children that had been vaccine injured from the smallpox vaccine and he refused to submit his third for a vaccination. So the police showed up for the fine money while uh, Mr. Ward was out and his wife didn't have it. So they confiscated all the downstairs furniture, insisted on being allowed upstairs, which she didn't let them do, and then um, berated her and frightened her to the point that um, the shock of it all caused her to go into early labor, according to the news report. Um, and uh, the child that she gave birth to was stillborn and she herself died a few weeks later. So that was a particularly tragic tragic case um, of what you know did happen at least in one case when um, someone refused to submit to vaccination. So two years later in March there was a tremendous demonstration in Leicester um, and uh, the, the estimates were that between 80 and 100,000 people were um, protesting the Vaccine Act and the procession of, of all the protesters was about two miles long and, and as of that date in 1885 in March, over 5,000 people in Leicester had been issued a summons for being in violation of the Vaccine Act. And that demonstration drew protesters from all over the country, not just from Leicester. And um, I thought it was interesting that uh, one of the things that Dr. Humphreys notes is, is that um, present at the demonstration was Spencer T. Hall, who had been vaccine injured at two years old um, after a smallpox vaccination, but he suffered an actual attack of the disease at 14, and after that, his health actually improved. Um, so seeing, you know, anecdotally, but, but what I've been trying to kind of explain all along, which is that the, the normal response of the body to disease is actually better for the body than, than this artificial exposure is. Um, so uh, around that time, the local government of Leicester was replaced by new folks who opposed vaccination instead of supporting it. And by 1887, which is two years later, vaccination rates for smallpox had fallen to about 10%. And uh, again, according to Dr. Humphreys, the medical profession proclaimed that Leicester residents would suffer greatly for their decision to turn their backs on vaccination. They prognosticated that this unvaccinated town with its highly flammable material would suffer with the dread disease that would spread like wildfire on a prairie and decimate the population. And a number of those things I just said were actually things that, that she's quoting from uh, articles at the time. So 
I would like to let uh, a gentleman of the time speak for himself. This is um, quoted in a different book called Vaccine Injuries by uh, Louis Conti and Tony Lyons. And they talk about John Thomas Biggs, who was a sanitary engineer and a member of the Lester Town Council, an alderman, a magistrate, and a member of the Derwent Valley Water Board. And he kept uh, meticulous records on the smallpox epidemic of 1871 to 1873. Um, that's the one that, that kicked all of this off in Leicester. And he published his findings in 1912. And he says, um, a new method for which great practical utility is claimed has been enforced by the Sanitary Committee of the Corporation for the stamping out of smallpox. And the chairman of the committee has gone so far as to declare that smallpox is one of the least troublesome diseases with which they have to deal. The method of treatment in a word is this. As soon as smallpox breaks out, the medical man and the householder are compelled under penalty to at once report the outbreak to the corporation. The smallpox van is at once ordered by telephone to proceed to the house in question. The hospital authorities are also instructed by telephone to make all arrangements and thus within a few hours, the sufferer is safely in the hospital. The family and inmates of the house are placed in quarantine and comfortable quarters and the house thoroughly disinfected. The result is that in every instance, the disease has been promptly and completely stamped out at a paltry expense. Use plenty of water, eat good food, live in light and airy houses and see that the corporation kept the streets clean and the drains in order. If such details were attended to, there was no need to fear smallpox. So basically what they did was practiced um, uh, improved sanitation, improved hygiene and um, quarantine measures for individuals that were infected or exposed to individuals that were infected. And they, and they saw much lower rates of smallpox than other towns that were highly vaccinated. So there are other ways to deal with disease. Um, and this was kind of the great uh, experiment, if you will, uh, in, in bucking mandatory vaccination. And at the time, uh, the vaccine proponents said, yep, it's, it's all going to go, you know, you know, where in a handbasket. And it turns out it didn't. So um, continuing along with our timeline, in 1896, William Tebb became the president of England's National Anti-Vaccination League, and he, um, he was prosecuted and fined 13 times for refusing to vaccinate his daughter. And his visits to the U.S. are what started the U.S. Anti-Vaccination League. So we're going to uh, jump across to the United States, where about nine years later, um, there's a famous Supreme Court case. And I know this has probably been cited and a number of people have expressed concern about a, a high-profile um, lawyer whose name I'm not remembering right now. Uh, who talked about mandatory vaccination not being in violation of the Constitution. And so this, this um, decision in 1905 is uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And uh, Jacobson had been, and his son both had had severe reactions to the smallpox vaccine. And the court ruled that they were still required to get uh, the vaccine that was currently being mandated by law in Massachusetts. And, and a quote from that um, court case is, is uh, as follows. It is within the police power of a state to enact a compulsory vaccination law. And it is for the legislature and not for the courts to determine in the first instance whether vaccination is or is not the best mode for the prevention of smallpox and the protection of the public health. So um, the case has been made that this, this particular case uh, is an example of utilitarianism that's being used to justify vaccines uh, and susceptible minorities like Jacobson and his son are being sacrificed for what's considered the greater good, which in this case would be the elimination of the spread of smallpox. But um, as the 
the Lester example proves there are other ways to do that. And also, um, you know, at the time that this, even that this was being done, often smallpox epidemics were associated with vaccination. So vaccination could start them um, rather than stop them. And uh, the argument has been made that this, this Jacobson versus Massachusetts uh, ruling actually paved the way for another ruling um, called Buff versus Bell in 1927. And, and this, uh, this allowed the passage of eugenics laws in, in many places in the U.S. and it gave a green light for um, what ended up resulting in forcible sterilization of, of uh, as many as 60,000 Americans up to the late 1940s. So it's another way that vaccination is connected to eugenics, um, this idea of utilitarianism, that, the, the, that somehow the, the greater good overrules the individual's good. So I'd like to note at this point that um, while the, the law was mandatory and the Supreme Court upheld the idea of vaccines being mandatory, Jacobson actually did not get the vaccine even after the court ruling. He just had to pay a fine. So he paid a fine of $5 and um, did not have to be injected with smallpox. So this brings me to another important point because I know a number of people are concerned about being forced vaccinated. Um, and the idea is that, you know, somebody's going to kind of grab you and hold you down and, and, and jab you with a needle. And um, from other, what other lawyers have said that I've, I've heard, um, this action actually qualifies as assault and battery. So this is something other than, than mandatory vaccination at this point. Um, the law can require you to be vaccinated, but it does not appear that they can, it, it can uh, require that someone come and actually hold you down and, and stick you with a needle. So you can have a penalty if you refuse to comply, but um, I, don't, I don't think there's a legal precedent for um, actually making you receive the vaccine. Um, so that was that was comforting to me <laughs> when I was doing this research. Um, so in uh, in 1922, there was another case in Texas. Um, and this time, the individual was seeking redress for being denied entry into both public and private schools after refusing vaccination. And this person also lost. Um, but again, they didn't have to receive the vaccine. They just were unable to attend the schools that they wanted to do. And um, by 1986 in the U.S., um, there were a number of vaccine injury cases, uh, the vaccine manufacturers were being sued quite a bit actually, and it was becoming a rather risky proposition to make vaccines. And so um, Congress enacted the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, uh, which despite its names also covers adults. And, and this established the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, uh, abbreviated VAERS, and also the Vaccine Court. And the idea was that this would make it uh, swifter and easier for parents and um, well, and adults who were injured to seek redress for the injuries uh, for themselves or their children and, and be compensated accordingly without putting the manufacturers at risk. So it, this act really made manufacturers completely exempt from liability for vaccine injury and the federal government assumed that liability through um, the vaccine court. And that uh, the money for that uh, system is, is paid as a tax on every vaccine that's injected. It's about 75 cents, I think, per vaccine. Um, so in 1995, about nine years later, um, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services Secretary, uh, who at the time was uh, Donna Sh Shalala, if I'm saying that right, it gave the, the Social Security Administration the right to reveal the Social Security number of newborn infants to state health department officials for use in a vaccine tracking registry. So the groundwork 
has actually already been laid a long time ago for um, a national vaccine registry where you would be tracked as to your vaccine status. But um, I, I didn't find anything else uh, updated on that in the, in the research that I did this week um, as to whether that has, uh, has been um, initiated or not. So there's, there's a hole in my, in my timeline there. It only goes up to 1995 and that's uh, that's a while ago. Um, but uh, that's kind of the, the general history of um, the idea of mandated vaccines or mandatory vaccines. And, and as of right now, vaccine laws are pretty much in the hands of the states. And um, when it comes to school attendance, uh, so vaccination isn't necessarily mandatory in the sense that, you know, you can't get out of your physician's office without getting a vaccine, but you can potentially get denied admittance into schools or daycares. And um, all states allow medical exemptions to this uh, mandate. And, and so those are, if you've had an allergic, if you have an allergic reaction to a component of the vaccine, or you've had a serious adverse reaction to a vaccine in the past or something like that, you can get a medical exemption. Um, 15 states allow what's called philosophical exemptions. So um, these are exemptions that you can just say, I'm personally opposed to vaccines. And so from kind of from East-ish to West-ish, those states are uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, North Dakota, um, Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, Idaho, and Oregon. And all but five states allow religious exemptions. So you can claim that your religion um, will not allow you to get vaccines. Now, that's not really a claim that a Catholic can make so much because of um, our religion does not oppose vaccination in general, but you could potentially make it at least for the aborted fetal cells. I think that would be Mm -hmm. uh, reasonable if, if that's a distinction that can be made. But so those, those are allowed in all states except for California, um, Mississippi, Maine, West Virginia, and New York. Um, and so I, I was also asked this week at some point, um, what about uh, compulsory vaccination for healthcare workers? Like how does that work? And um, state immunization laws for most states, um, including the one that we live in and, and the ones that we border, um, do, do not actually require vaccination. Um, and, but individual hospitals are permitted to require it as a condition of employment. And since most of this falls under at-will employment, um, the, there's, there's not really a direct avenue of redress for an individual um, with like a philosophical is exemption kind of uh, thing. There has been some legal redress through lobbying uh, with the nurses union. Um, but even with that, uh, an NBC News report um, recently, as recent as 2017, basically reported that when employers require a vaccine, the CDC found that 85% of the workers get one. So I thought that was interesting. It's required, but still 15 people are opt 15% of people are opting out. Um, and uh, so there, there, there must be some kind of um, way to do that, but I'm not sure that would probably depend on which exact organization you were employed by and you'd have to do a little digging um, on your own for, for a specific uh, disease. And um, I also just kind of wanted to note in terms of mandatory vaccination of healthcare workers, it's supposed to, you know, prevent spread of disease and, and healthcare workers are exposed to a lot of disease. Um, but uh, there are other things that could also be very helpful in preventing spread of disease. And, and one of them is, is hand washing. And the CDC uh, has stated without giving a real statistic that uh, in terms of a number um, that healthcare workers clean their hands less than half as often as they should. <laughs> and uh, simply increasing hand washing would probably do more to reduce disease spread than, than 
um, 100% compliance with vaccination, but um, that's not the avenue that's that's being pursued currently. Very good. Well, that's an excellent history, Pam, uh, of really what is largely a civil liberties question too. Obviously, religious exemptions you mentioned and things like that, but uh, the notion of forced vaccinations, at least in the past, um, through various legislative acts like the Vaccination Act and sanitary boards, very, very uh, sort of big government uh, sort of promoting and pushing this. But it's not just a question of civil liberties, I think. I think you're also saying that there's potential consequences um, that this is about, a, this is a healthcare question too, the best way to deal with the well-being of the human person and their immune system. So we're getting into a very, very, I think a, uh, a touchy topic, okay. some of the consequences of vaccination. Is there a connection between vaccinations and things like autism, autoimmune deficiencies? Um, and I think, you know, whenever I look at a CDC website or some other sort of uh, agency's website, they'll always say there is absolutely no evidence uh, regarding um, the connection with vaccines and autism. Or they'll say, well, yeah, there was a paper that came out, but it was retracted um, that was showing the connection, but the person had to take it back. Um, but then I, I was mentioned to Pam and I, 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 I failed to get her the copy, but I believe it was even in the month of May or as early as March where the CDC admitted and it was on its website that there is no direct evidence that vaccines do not cause autism either. So when they say there's no vaccines never cause this, they don't know. Right. So that's yeah, a most way, but if you could look into that or rather speak to that. Sure. Um, most of the studies actually that that say that there's no no link between vaccines and a particular adverse event um what they're really concluding is there's insufficient evidence to establish a link but what people don't realize because it's not explicitly stated in the conclusion is that that usually means that there's also insufficient evidence to establish there's not a link and a negative is a very very difficult thing to demonstrate using empirical um evidence and so you you can't you cannot say that the scientific evidence has demonstrated that there's no link. Um, it's just something that, 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 based on the way empiricism works, you can't prove it. You can say that the link has not been supported up to this point conclusively, but that doesn't mean that that it's been disproven. So there's there's some again some semantic problems with the way that some of this is pr presented. So um, uh, another semantic distinction that's important to make is just um, when you think about autism. Autism is a behavioral diagnosis, not a medical diagnosis. So it's it's a cluster of, of symptoms that are, are generally behavioral and there's there's not really, it's not like you can do a, a brain scan on somebody or a genetic screening on somebody and say, oh yes, this person has the biological markers of autism. So um, it's, it's a little bit uh, kind of disingenuous to say, to talk about vaccines um, 
causing or not causing autism in, in, from a biological perspective. But we do know that, that uh, vaccines can cause encephalopathy. And so this is inflammation in the brain. Mm -hmm. And then we also know that inflammation in the brain can result in autism uh, like behavioral symptoms. And so there, there is a, a kind of an indirect link there that that's very well established. I mean, the vaccine injury court accepts encephalopathy as a possible adverse event for um, certain vaccines, if not all vaccines. So there's uh, a number of kind of cases that have been made for the link with vaccines and autism. And it's interesting that I'm sitting here talking about this tonight, Father, because when I first got started researching vaccines, I was like, I'm not touching autism. I'm not going near it. I'm not, I'm not looking into that question. I'm going to look at all the other possible questions, but I don't want to touch this one because it's so political and it's such a hot topic. Um, but, but I have to, I, it, it's, it's something that I think there's, there's a good enough case that's being made um, for some of these risks that, then it's worth looking at. So um, two of the ingredients that are included in vaccines are, are um, potential neurotoxins. And those two are thimerosal, and, which is a preservative, and aluminum, which is an adjuvant. So I'm going to talk about thimerosal first. And um, uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. has actually published a book on thimerosal. It's very well referenced from what I know. And um, uh, he talks about how um, thimerosal was, was removed from three childhood vaccines in 2003. And this was kind of in spite of the fact that the government was protesting that it, that it, was, it was safe um, and, and wouldn't cause any harm. But it was added to multi-dose vials of the flu vaccine in, in greater amounts than was actually removed from the schedule. So if you're getting the flu vaccine each year, especially as a child, you're getting more thimerosal than you were getting before it was removed from vaccines in 2003. Um, so he also points out that um, the, the thimerosal is recognized to be a biohazard. Um, in some states, the doctors must evacuate the building and call an actual hazmat team if um, one of these vials of multi-dose flu vaccine is dropped and it breaks. And the flu vaccines are tr treated themselves as hazardous waste. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons for this is the, the, the toxic dose of mercury is considered to be 200 parts per billion. And, you know, part per billion is fairly low. So mercury is fairly toxic. And, and an acceptable level in drinking water is about two parts per billion. And the dose that's given in vaccines is, is um, 50,000 parts per billion. So this is um, uh, not, not doing my math wonderfully at the moment, but... It's um, toxic. What's that? It's pretty toxic. About 250 times the toxic dose. Um, and so I, I actually went and looked up the MSDS myself because being the consummate skeptic that I am, I never like to just take people's word for it. And so, um, and the MSDS is the material safety data sheet. There's a, one of these available for every chemical under the sun. And they just kind of tell you what's what's associated in, in, with it in terms of, of hazards and, and how it should be used and, and flammability and things like that. And so it rates as a two um, on the health hazard, which is, is hazardous. Um, and it's, it's hazardous in the case of skin contact, eye contact, ingestion, and inhalation. And severe overexposure can result in death. It's mutagenic for mammalian somatic cells, or that is body cells. It's uh, toxic to kidneys, to the central nervous system, and to the central nervous system. It may be, may be toxic to the liver and the spleen. 
Repeated or prolonged exposure to the substance can produce target organ damage, and repeated exposure to a highly toxic, highly toxic material may produce general deterioration of health by an accumulation in one or many human organs. And this is all directly from the material safety data sheet. So I didn't make this up and neither did the anti-vaccine activists. Um, this is not, uh, not a joke <laughs> as a chemical, uh, it's, it's pretty serious. And um, it, it does say that in the case of a, a large spill, you're not supposed to touch it and you need to call assistance for disposal. So um, th that, that pretty well validates what he says, but the particular part of interest to us here when we're talking about autism is, is the central nervous system damage. And so what's, what's seen in, in children that develop symptoms of autism is some kind of central nervous system damage. And that um, manifests itself in slightly different ways depending on the level of damage and, and it, it's been linked to mutations or to uh, chemical exposures or to genetics and um, we'll kind of look at uh, some of that genetic side here in just a second um, but certainly thimerosal is a chemical exposure that can cause central nervous damage system damage and so I don't think it can be ruled out as a possible um, triggering agent in the development of autism now obviously not all kids develop autism uh, from vaccination because there are a lot of kids that don't have it. But just to kind of put things in perspective, um, you know, I was talking earlier, people were worried about rabies and uh, I was talking earlier about there are about 30 to 60,000 cases of, of rabies per year in the US and about one to three deaths. But there are, as of 2016, so the birth year 2016, um, there were about one in 54 kids were diagnosed with autism from that birth year. There were a little over 3.1 million kids that were born. That makes a little over 70,000 kids with autism. That is a lot of kids with autism. Mm -hmm. um, and if vaccines are triggering this or involved in this in any way, it, it's something we really need to be serious about. Um, so the, the second material that's that's been implicated in the development of uh, autistic symptoms is uh, the aluminum adjuvants, which are also known to be um, neurotoxic. And so uh, I looked up the MSDS on aluminum oxyhydroxide and uh, aluminum hydro hydrophosphate uh, sulfate or hydroxyphosphate sulfate. I've made a typo there, so I'm not sure which one it is. Um, and both of these have pretty clean MSDSs. They're, they're, they're on record as, as not being harmful. So why are we worried about them in vaccines? Well, um, most of the time that you're exposed to aluminum, it's through um, the skin or the oral route. And aluminum is extremely poorly absorbed through both of those routes. So this is something very different than injecting aluminum in your body. So I went looking for um, an indication of, of what is a safe dose or considered a safe dose of aluminum um, that's received perinerally, uh, which is a, a scientific word for basically not through the mouth. So if you're gonna, if you're gonna um, insert aluminum in the body, um, levels of about four to five micrograms per kilogram per day are considered um, that's kind of the top level for patients that have either impaired kidney or ha that have impaired kidney function and that includes premature um, babies and so this is kind of the um, the the lowest maximum safe dose um, and this is on the the uh, FDA's website um, and it's it's particularly given for um, if you have to have intravenous uh, nourishment 
um, those those solutions often contain aluminum and so they have to have less um, than a certain uh, number of, of um, micrograms or milligrams of aluminum and, and it you have to give it to the person at a rate that's that's lower than what I said here. So just for kind of reference, a microgram is um, a thousandth of a milligram and it's a, a millionth of a gram and a paperclip weighs about a gram. So we're talking about a millionth of a paperclip <laughs> worth mm -hmm. of uh, something when we talk about a microgram. So um, this is adjusted for body size. So it's in micrograms per kilogram. So uh, an infant would receive in that case, kind of a much higher dose than you or I would receive because they're much smaller. So the average infant weighs about 3.3 .3 kilograms. And um, that that would mean that, that about, you know, if we take the upper limit, so about 15, 16.5 uh, micrograms of aluminum would be what's considered uh, a safe dose for a baby, um, you know, and again, this is coming, this is for patients with impaired kidney function. So maybe slightly higher than that could be safe, but this is the only established in the literature safe uh, uh, rate that I could find. So again, about 15, 16 grams, micrograms of aluminum. Sorry, I don't know if I said grams before, it's getting late at night. Um, so 15 to 16 micrograms of aluminum. The hepatitis B vaccine, which is given at birth, father, contains 250 micrograms of aluminum. So that's significantly higher than uh, the, the rate that is considered acceptable in, in infants. And so I think one of the reasons this is probably maybe kind of passed over is, well, you know, if you average it out, they're still receiving less than the four to five micrograms per kilogram per day. But the problem with arguing that is that your body can only eliminate aluminum so fast. In fact, your body's not very efficient at eliminating aluminum. So if you're injecting loads of aluminum into an infant um, who's going to be even less efficient because their kidneys aren't, you know, fully as fully developed as an adult, um, that that can truly be a problem. And at two months of age, when babies are about 5.5 kilograms, um, they receive uh, 1,225 micrograms of aluminum. So this is, a, this is an extremely high amount of aluminum for somebody that tiny. And um, the, this is, uh, nobody's really tested this in, in infants. I mean, for obvious, for ethical reasons, you don't wanna inject babies with a known neurotoxin and, and then do an experiment on that. Um, so it's, it's, you know, kind of, um, curious to note though, that the US has an extremely high rate of newborn deaths for an industrialized country. And there are folks who think that there's a relationship between the injection of aluminum here with, with that, that problem. So but there's another, um, and then of course, if aluminum is neurotoxic, it can cause the kind of uh, brain inflammation that is also associated with autism. And there's another possible uh, biological mechanism for causing autism through vaccination, and that's fetal DNA. And this is research done by Dr. Teresa Deicher, and I highly, highly recommend her. She's um, working with Sound Choice Pharmaceuticals. I believe she founded it, and she's she's done research that shows that autism rates rise with the introduction of each new aborted fetal cell-derived vaccine. So not necessarily with each new vaccine, but with each one that's uh, um, manufactured in aborted fetal cells. And she's looked at countries in Europe that pulled some of the vaccines after the initial autism scare that was from that paper that you mentioned. Um, by the way, that paper was published by Andrew Wakefield in, in the Lancet, the journal of the Lancet, and it was retracted, but it was not retracted because um, the Lancet published any problem with his research, but because 
there was an undisclosed conflict of interest, you know, which is not great, but that, that does, that's not even nearly equivalent to saying, oh, his research has been debunked. Um, and in fact, there, there are um, researchers who have replicated what he did and there are researchers who tried to replicate what he did and, and, and not seen it. And there are conflicts of interest there as well. Generally the, the negative studies are funded by um, vaccine manufacturers and the, and the positive studies are funded by um, people who, who have ideological ties to, to not vaccinating. Um, so there's a, there's a, a lot of conflict of interest going on in this and, and it's not, it's not clear. Um, uh, you know, what exactly the, the etiology is here. But Dr. Deicher does a really good job of explaining it, um, looking at these fetal cell drive vaccines. So these countries in Europe pulled the vaccines after the, the Wakefield paper was published, and then they reintroduced them later after it was discredited. And what happened is their autism rates dropped when they pulled the vaccines and they rose again after reintroduction. And this is the closest we are ever going to get to an experiment on, on looking at rates of autism and their link to vaccines. And this happened in more than one country. And so um, she proposes a biological mechanism that's actually well documented in the literature for why this would happen. And so it's known that in some cases of autism, children uh, develop what's called de novo mutations. These are new mutations that are not present in either parent. And we know that if you introduce um, DNA into cells in, in the laboratory, that um, if the DNA is homologous, that is if it's similar uh, to the original DNA, they can kind of line up and then switch places. So this is called homologous recombination. And it, it can cause the um, DNA that's in solution to be incorporated into the DNA that's present in the cells. And the fetal contaminant DNA in the chickenpox vaccine, um, particularly, it actually exceeds the amount of chickenpox material that's in the vaccine as an active ingredient. So we know that there's fetal DNA in these um, aborted fetal-derived vaccines, and we know that fetal DNA at the concentrations it's present in the vaccines can cause um, mutations. And so this is a plausible biological mechanism. And it, it also has a dose response. So she, as she noted um, when she was doing her research and, and the CDC has actually changed the way it reports certain things so she can't keep doing it, which is also rather curious. I don't want to get into any conspiracy theories here, Father, but it's curious. Um, but, uh, but she's established that there's a biological gradient there. So like the more uh, aborted fetal cell derived vaccines I have, the more autism I have. And the, the Bradford Hill criteria for establishing an epi epidemiologic cause of a disease, um, biological gradient is actually an important criteria um, and, and a biological mechanism is as well. And it's interesting that um, many people say, well, the idea that vaccines and autism are linked, it's, it's, it's correlation, not causation, but temporality is the only one of the nine Bradford Hill criteria that's absolutely necessary to establish causation. And so it's curious that, that people just kind of dismiss that with a wave of hand, like, well, it was temporarily related to the vaccine, but it couldn't possibly be caused by the vaccine. Well, temporality is the only thing that's absolutely necessary to establish causation. And then as I mentioned to you, Father, um, there have actually been uh, cases where the vaccine court has awarded injuries in instances of autism. And the most famous is, is a little girl named Hannah Poling. And she had five vaccines at, at 19 months old. And um, prior to that, she was interactive, playful, and communicative. And two days later, she was lethargic, irritable, and feverish. She developed a, a chickenpox rash after 10 days. And she was diagnosed with encephalopathy, um, which was linked to a mitochondrial enzyme deficit. So 
um, people want to dismiss this case by saying, well, she had an underlying problem and that's why she developed autism. It wasn't because of the vaccine, but she clearly didn't have autism prior to her, her five injections and she did afterwards. And so one of the things that's overlooked in the vaccine autism debate is that we don't have a single cause for autism. I'm not saying that every child that has autism it has it because they've been vaccinated. And I don't think anybody else out there is saying that either. But there are environmental triggers that can, and we know this, I just crossed the board in all living things. There are environmental triggers that can cause the way that your DNA is expressed to change. And this is, this is called epigenetics. And if you're never exposed to that environmental trigger, you will never develop the disease or, or the symptoms. And so um, it's, it's, it's not legitimate, I think, to dismiss vaccination as a possible cause um, just because you're saying, okay, well, there was an underlying cause and that's the real cause. Well, the vaccine was, was the um, uh, efficient cause. <laughs> you know, it was the thing that was right there happening, it bringing it happening, causing to bring it about. So I've, so, I've so talked a lot, Father. I'm sorry. Sure, no, I, I, I appreciate that. That's very helpful. Uh, <clears throat> lots of, uh, well, circumstantial sort of evidence, some, some connections, anecdotal, um, but also some research has been done that seems to be an increase in autism with the increase of the use of vaccines derived from fetal tissue cells. Right. Um, but I want to, and we have to kind of maybe do this a bit more quick here. Okay. <laughs> uh, and vaccines, you have stated, do not always treat the immune system of the human being in a holistic way. Right. It might excite the producing of a lot of antibodies to go after the antigens and the pathogens and so forth that come into the body. But it's sort of an artificialized uh, excitement of the immune system so that maybe it's not fully engaged. So with that in mind, the immune system seems to be um, not properly used. So would vaccines perhaps harm the immune system in some way because it's sort of exciting it to do something that is, it's not being attacked. I mean, there is no, they're not, it doesn't have a disease, but it's right. being purposely excited. Does it cause your immune system maybe even to start attacking you? the autoimmune deficiencies. And like I said, maybe a quick, like, like three or four minute overview. Sorry about that. Yes, I, sorry. I will, I will be quick. Um, um, but maybe just a quick, quick overview. And because, um, you know, when people say, you know, boy, there's a lot more diabetes than I remember growing up. There's a lot more of this. There's a lot more of that. And I wonder, so, so, go, so tell us just very quickly. <laughs> okay, sure. So there's, there's an underlying mechanistic link between the development of allergies and autoimmunity. And um, right now I'll go ahead and refer readers or listeners to um, a book called Vaccine Illusion. And I can't pronounce the name of the author, um, uh, but her first name is Tatiana and her last name starts with an O. <laughs> um, and uh, she talks about how the response that you see in vaccination is actually much more akin to allergy than it is to real immunity. And particularly with this idea that you're, you're sensitized to the antigen on the first exposure, so that's the first vaccine. And then you get the boosters, which causes a, a, a greater response. And so we see that with aller allergic um, reactions developing. You don't have, uh, usually have a prophylactic response to the very first exposure. You have to be exposed to it, sensitized to it, and then your body will react. And so, um, 
it's uh, it's interesting to note that one of the things I learned while I was researching this father is that actually um, the first case of hay fever was described in 1828 and the first real studies done on allergies were done in the 1870s and the disease itself or allergic reactions themselves were not well recognized until the 1900s and uh, the case has been made that that the hypodermic needle which was introduced in 1853 had a lot to do with the development of environmental allergies once we started injecting things underneath the skin because they were coming into the body in ways that weren't normal um, but also once we started adding adjuvants to vaccines so as to kind of make a mental note on that a while back, um, aluminum adjuvants, which we just mentioned, are also neurotoxic. They're, they're broad spectrum, so they can cause you to have an immune response to a variety of things. And there are a number of studies that have demonstrated a connection between either oral or non-oral administration of aluminum. Um, and, and that can cause animals to become allergic to foods that they're consuming at the same time that they're being either um, either eating the aluminum or being injected with the aluminum. And so there's a, there's a logical biological mechanism that links aluminum adjuvants and allergies. And then autoimmune progressions, there's, there's a lot we don't understand about autoimmune progression. And, and I think part of the problem is that we're looking at diseases like multiple sclerosis and type one diabetes and lupus and arthritis, like they're all different diseases, but really the underlying etiology is the same. There's a breakdown in the recognition of self versus non-self. And, and um, it's only the part of the body to which the sensitization occurs that is different. So um, there's been described in the literature, this um, something called the autoimmune inflammatory syndrome induced by adjuvants is abbreviated Asia. And this is a controversial um, claim it's been dismissed by those that claim that the definition is too broad and it doesn't explain the diversity of symptoms. But the diversity of symptoms isn't really a problem because the, the etiology of the disease is the same, the cause of the disease is the same. Your body is attacking itself. It's just attacking different parts of itself in those different diseases. So in MS, it's attacking the myelin around your nerves and lupus is attacking your own DNA and diabetes, it's attacking your um, pancreatic cells that produce insulin. But it's still the immune system that's doing the attacking. And so, um, similar sorts of things can can mediate autoimmunity as well as, as allergies. This could be a problem um, of training the body through vaccination to produce B cell reactions. It could be a problem with the adjuvants that, you know, you're introducing an adjuvant and that's causing an abnormal immune, abnormally strong immune response. And so something that wouldn't normally react with the tissues in your body will, under those circumstances, react with the tissues in their body. And autoimmune diseases are another recognized uh, adverse event reaction with vaccines, um, particularly Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, which is a, a degenerative neurologic disease. And, and there are a couple of other autoimmune diseases that are recognized as, as being connected with vaccines as well. <clears throat> Very good. Uh, so again, if you fool around with the immune system a little too much, it might uh, turn turn on the very person who's trying to protect. Right. Um, so I want to take some questions. At this time, if people have some questions they want to write, and obviously it's a wonderful presentation by Pam, lots of wonderful information, especially about the history of vaccination acts, England, the United States, uh, the notion of forced vaccinations, uh, some of the sort of protections in that regard. Um, then also the connection potentially with uh, autism and autoimmune disorders and sort of the ideologies behind it. And of course, as, as, uh, as we take questions and again, people please write some questions in, part of the enlightenment um, sort of notion is to sort of re remake humanity and uh, into something better, stronger than it was, and so to somehow 
um, overcome the fall to somehow produce Eden once again on earth. And right. we have to understand that this notion of a paradise returning in a risk-free environment in which all disease, a war on a war on poverty, a war on drugs, a war on all viruses. It's something that we live in a fallen world and uh, we're you know, offered uh, the gift of eternal life uh, and the resurrection of the body um, that might have to be buried because of death. So there's some questions that I see. So Pam, let me go through some of these with you. Um, sure. The first one, this is a good one because uh, and I wonder if the CDC has made any adjustments regarding this. The question was, how do they, they referring to the, 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 the vaccinators and medical sort of people, justify giving any vaccines to a baby before their immune systems are even fully developed? I think the primary justification is that the infants are susceptible to the disease. So last time we talked about measles and um, vaccination with measles rendering um, people more susceptible or infants more susceptible because there's no longer protective maternal antibodies being passed through the breast milk. And so people have seen, oh, oh there's, there's, a, there's a susceptibility in this age group, so we should really give them a vaccination. And it, it goes down to that ideology that you talked about at the beginning, Father. I mean, the ideology is we can protect everybody with the vaccines and we can tinker with nature and everything will be okay. And so it, it just, um, I, I think it's ideological. I don't think there's, there's, there's not scientific evidence um, supporting infant vaccination. Um, in terms of its its safety or efficacy because those tests just aren't done in infants because that would, like I said, be unethical. Um, and their immune systems aren't fully developed. And that's one of the problems that we're seeing, I think, in terms of the complete retraining of the immune system. Uh, there's a, some articles that have been published on the flu in particular. It's called One of them was called Your First Flu is Forever. Uh, and basically the idea is that the, the the first exposure you get to to the flu particularly it shapes your immune response to the flu for the rest of your life so if your first exposure is a vaccine that that could have problematic effects that we just don't even can't even imagine um at this point very good someone uh was didn't really ask a question per se but they they mentioned uh that author the vaccine illusion by uh, mm -hmm. tatiana can you, do you know that, how to pronounce that last name? No, I don't. <laughs> Obukhankch. For those who are interested, perhaps if people have access to the Q&A box, there is a link. No, I don't, I don't think they do, Father. That may be something okay. we need to email out. So maybe, uh, maybe the person who wrote in that uh, link can maybe put in the chat. Would it work if we put it on the chat uh, box? Um, I think you could put it on the chat as long as the chat can go to all participants, link, um, all attendees. Give it to all sort of participants, all attendees. I think I can do that, actually. Okay, great. And while you're typing yeah. that in, the, the last question that we, we received tonight had to do with, um, you know, we, we talked about the vaccinations and some of the problems with the shots we see. Could it also allergy shots? Can they also be problematic health-wise to your immune system or uh, to your body in general? Um, so that that is a question that I am actually not 100% sure how to answer. Um, that's uh, okay. 
I know I've, I've heard some things kind of both ways and it's not something I've directly done research on. So I, I don't like to comment on things that I haven't um, thoroughly researched. Well, when Pam doesn't know it, I don't know who does, right? <laughs> that's, that's maybe a little bit of an overstatement. So, so we're getting towards the end. Um, and, uh, you know, Pam is obviously a member of our parish. And so people might have uh, questions that they may not have been, at, been able to ask this evening. So, Pam, would it be all right if people just contact you in some way or, uh, you know, stop you uh, on the way out of church one morning or? Yeah, no, I, I welcome questions at any point. I mean, and I don't, I don't expect people to take my word for all of this either. I mean, I think doing your own research is excellent if, you know, if you're able to do that. Um, and, uh, and I'm happy to, to read anything that, that, you know, anybody sort of recommends as, as you know, maybe you should think about this or um, uh, think about that. Uh, but I, I did want to, if, if we just have a couple more minutes, Father, just sure. mention, I know some people were concerned about um, ways to minimize damage if you do end up being forced vaccinated or forced to vaccinate. And so I just wanted to just, just really quickly mention a few sure. of those things. Please do, yes. Okay. Um, so the, the, there's, there's kind of all kinds of information circulating out there. And I, I'm not saying this is a comprehensive list. There are probably additional things you can do, but these are things that seem to be um, kind of a consensus across the board that people say um, make uh, the damage less likely. So uh, in the first place, do not ever get a vaccination if you are sick. So if you are sick, definitely make sure you put it off until you are well again, because that can cause um, severe immune uh, interactions and can cause severe reactions. Um, do not take Tylenol preemptively. Um, uh, Tylenol is, is it's debatable actually whether Tylenol is even um, safe. It's because of what it does in the body and in terms of de depleting glutathione levels and suppressing fever, which is a normal reaction of the immune system. It certainly is over, uh, over consumed. So uh, don't do that before a vaccination that can make the reaction worse. Um, and don't take a vaccine while you're, getting, you're taking antibiotics. antibiotics. Um, taking probiotics can be helpful, but um, you'd need to consume these for about two months prior to and three months after a vaccination. Um, vitamin A and vitamin C are both helpful. Um, uh, I don't remember the dosage of vitamin A. I think it's just a, sort of a normal uh, FDA recommendation, but the vitamin C dosage recommended is significantly higher than the FDA recommendation. I believe it was um, four grams in divided doses, so 4,000 milligrams. Um, to be taken before and after for uh, several days. And then um, just always, if you have to have a vaccine, make sure that the vaccine is being given in the correct part of the body in the correct manner. And that's one of my concerns about this warp speed operation, Father, is there's a, there's a number of um, vaccine injuries, particularly with the tetanus shot, if it's not given in the right place in the shoulder, it can cause severe shoulder damage because it can, it can damage the nerves um, in the body, just the, the, the physical action of the needle. Um, aside from all the vaccine problems. Um, so if you have to get a vaccine, make sure that you know where and how it should be given and make sure that the person follows that procedure. So, well, now, now, and of course, that was one of your uh, sort of motivations was to not only find ethical... Um, yeah, to avoid shots. <laughs> ethical versions, but didn't like the shots too much, but also... No, not so much. <laughs> The thing is, it's more natural when people receive things you said through the respiratory system or orally. And so you mm -hmm. talk about edible vac vac vaccines. And that, yes. That, and and interestingly, 
in the vaccine illusion, Father, um, the she she talks about a, a study that was done in the 1920s where they immunized guinea pigs for tetanus by feeding them tetanus spores because tetanus doesn't infect you through the oral route, but the exposure to the spores allowed the immune system to kind of gain uh, recognition of it. And then when the guinea pigs were uh, wounded and then spores were put into the wounds, which is the normal way you get lockjaw um, or the symptoms of tetanus, um, then they were immune to it. And that immunity was strain specific, but it was, it was an alternate form of inducing immunity to vaccination, but it wasn't pursued. It was one of those things that, that kind of just got left there on the table because it wasn't what was in the literature, um, as we talked a little bit about last time. Just, just think how popular the doctor would be in the future if they have ethical vaccines, which were somehow not uh, hurt harmful the immune system, that were edible, and the children <laughs> wouldn't have to take shots with sharp needles. So before we, and I want to get to this last question, someone just wrote one in. Um, the, que the question is, which of the 49, I, I assume there are 49 CDC recommended vaccines, which of them would you consider safe? Or at least well, I, I think that's 49 doses, not 49 vaccines, but... Um, okay. 49 doses. You know, I've, I've gotten asked a couple of times if there are any vaccines I would recommend, and really that is... Um, it's not even something that's necessarily legal for me to do because I'm not a medical practitioner. <laughs> um, right. So, so I am going to have to say, um, you know, take, take what you have, uh, you know, learned about the, the impacts individually, but also, you know, sort of sociologically or societally um, about vaccinations and, and apply your own risk benefit analysis. Um, and the vaccine inserts uh, indicate what, um, possible side effects there are with the vaccine. And there are a couple of um, books that, uh, that may have them sitting next to me um, that talk about some of the, some of the ones that your doctor may not tell you about. And I found um, this one probably the most helpful. This is, this is uh, what your doctor may not tell you about children's vaccinations. Um, so she deals with a lot of the adverse re reactions and then the vaccine book um, by Dr. Sears deals with some of them. I don't really 100% agree with Dr. Sears because he thinks that the HPV vaccine is safe. And I think that there is a huge amount of evidence that that is not true at all. Um, so uh, I can say that all vaccines have risks associated with them. So if you're talking, if you're asked, the question is asking, you know, are any of them just perfectly, totally, completely safe and, and risk-free? No, they're not. Um, some of them are less reactive than others, though. Um, I believe the the um, the uh, the Hib vaccine is one of the least reactive, um, and that's for Haemophilus influenza B. But that's also given to infants, so you know. Then again, you have that 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 particular problem. Um, somebody in the comments is mentioning the vaccine friendly plan by Paul Thomas. Um, I don't. I don't, I don't recommend that book. I don't think um, the, the, he has a lot of other interesting parenting advice. <laughs> That's a little bit uh, strange in that book. He, he does have a, I think a somewhat reasonable um, uh, analysis of vaccines, but you can find the same information. I think better information in the, in the, um, what your doctor may not tell you about children's vaccinations. So Pam, Pam, very good. Thank you for everything for, for last week as well, uh, having gone through, obviously, the notion of unethical 
versions of vaccines, which we spoke about, um, and how we really have to object to that. It's a duty, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, then we moved on to say that uh, vaccines themselves, there, there's going to be a lot of promises that are made, but not all those promises are delivered upon. And also, there could be pretty much, in every case, some side effects, and some could be quite difficult. And, right. uh, and of course, maybe some connection even with some auto, autoimmune disorders or even autism. But, and of course, and then Pam, thank you for also going through the fact that uh, the history of sort of both sort of these uh, ideologues who have almost tyrannically imposed a vaccination culture upon us, but then there's always been, you told us, this notion of an anti-vax, which has become a pejorative term, unfortunately. It has, unfortunately. But, um, the fact that there's always been opposition to this because the good Lord gave us an immune system. And if you're not sick and you don't, you know, you're not, you're not doing things that would perhaps uh, lend themselves to a great risk of getting sick in a particular way that uh, like, like babies <laughs> intravenous drug use, it's not going to happen with babies. So why are you giving that sort of vaccine? So, so many of the things you've given to us and we very much appreciate all your research, but, um, maybe you could end and I'll give, I'll do a final prayer, but you have a paper, which is becoming more of a book as we speak. Book, yeah. you tell us, maybe not when, but <laughs> sort of when it is eventually, uh, done, it will, uh, you know, where, where it will be available. Yes. Uh, so I, I make no prom timeline promises, um, but I will say that the book has, has gone through uh, or is going through right now its first round of um, uh, questions and criticism from, from medical professionals. So um, that's a, a good step forward towards a final, a final uh, product. I have a few, couple of sections still to write on it, um, but uh, that will be available through um, the Colby Center. And of course, you know, those who are, um, you know, in the parish are welcome to ask me if you forget um, where, where to find that. But that is, that is uh, going to be published through the Colby Center for the Study of Creation. Wonderful. Thank you again, Pam, for all that you've done for us. Uh, and thank you for all those attendees at this Zoom presentation. And uh, we'll continue uh, with another Zoom presentation, probably on a, a lighter topic that I'll come up with. <laughs> Uh, but thank you all for attending, and let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As, as it was in the beginning, beginning, it is now, and ever shall be, world shall without be, end. Amen. world without end. Amen. I'm going to give you a final blessing through the intercession of our blessed Mother, good Saint Joseph, your guardian angels, the patron saints, Benedictio, Dei Onipotentis, Patris, et Firii, et Spiritus Sancti, et Supervos, et Mani, et Semper. Amen. Amen. Uh, bless everybody. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, Father.